Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Colorado Outdoors magazine. My name is John Arnold, and today I'll be reading various articles from the Colorado Outdoors magazine website, coloradooutdoorsmag.com. Women's History Month, celebrating the legacy of female wildlife officers in Colorado. Posted on March 18, 2022, by Cassidy English. There are many heroic women in Colorado's history, formidable women who overcame huge odds and continue to serve as role models across generations. A good example is Clara Brown, who was born a slave in Virginia in 1880, was separated from her family and sold at auction repeatedly until 1856 when she was granted her freedom. Upon her release, she joined a wagon train headed west and settled in Central City. There, she became known as Aunt Clara and famous for helping other former slaves travel west, find jobs, and raise families here after the end of the Civil War. A stained-glass window in the Colorado State Capitol honors her. Another legendary pioneer woman of Colorado was Helen Hunt Jackson, a writer and activist living in Colorado Springs who campaigned for improved treatment of Native Americans by the U.S. government. Her 1881 book, A Century of Dishonor, and her 1884 novel, Ramona, made her unpopular in the region, but earned her widespread acclaim as she worked to ease the suffering of Native Americans. You could just as easily add to the list of trailblazing Colorado women the names of Annie Metcalf and Susan Smith. They are the women who forged a path for all future female wildlife officers in Colorado, Metcalf in the 1880s and Smith in the modern era. And in March, a month celebrating women, it's a good time to look at these two inspiring wildlife officers. In 1898, Annie Metcalf made state history when she became Colorado's first female game warden. She was just a year late in making national history. In 1897, Hulda Neal from Michigan took the honor when she became America's first female game warden. Metcalf was appointed by Colorado Game Commissioner J.F. Sawn to serve as Deputy Game Warden in Route County. In a February 15, 1898 profile, the St. Louis Dispatch described Metcalf as exceedingly well qualified for the position of a practical game warden. The duties of a deputy warden are to hold himself or herself in readiness to be called on at any time to aid in the enforcement of the game laws of the state or to arrest any person found breaking the law, whether by killing game out of season or having it unlawfully in possession, the post-dispatch story said. Miss Metcalf is exceedingly well qualified for the position of a practical game warden. According to the newspaper, Metcalf was an expert rifle and revolver shot and can handle most weapons as dexterously as any man. The newspaper also praised her skills in the saddle, saying she was a clever horsewoman and as a daring, dashing rider, she is without an equal among her sex in the state. Metcalf declined to detail many of her escapades as a game warden, even though some stories she told the paper would make your hair turn gray with fright. Metcalf was just 26 years old in 1898, 22 years before women had the right to vote. Yet she was patrolling remote Colorado wilderness on horseback, a gun at her side, arresting violators of game laws and confronting dangerous wildlife. Metcalf didn't want to be thought of as a superhero, in fact, there was one animal that sent her running. It is said that she was fearless, except when it came to cows, the Post-Dispatch reported. She would readily face dangers such as mountain lions, 
but would run from or scramble up a telegraph pole to avoid being in the path of a cow. Metcalf insisted cows seemed to hate her. I am much afraid of a cow, she told the newspaper. All cows seem to have a particular dislike for me. I don't know why, but it's true, though. I never met one on the road yet that didn't run after me, whether I was on foot, on horseback, or mounted on a wheel. Fast forward to 1974, when Susan Smith joined the Division of Wildlife as a District Wildlife Manager, or DWM, becoming Colorado's first female wildlife officer. By the time Smith was sworn in, much had changed in Colorado since Metcalf's time. For example, Colorado no longer had game wardens. Instead, the Wildlife Agency officially dropped the title in the 1950s in favor of District Wildlife Manager to better reflect the qualifications and duties of wildlife officers, including the requirement that each must have a college education with an emphasis in biology. Also, the State Wildlife Agency had changed names several times. By 1974, it was the Division of Wildlife. Today it is known as Colorado Parks and Wildlife. CPW's Colorado Outdoors magazine profiled Smith in March 1975, noting she held two bachelor's degrees, one in animal science from the University of Arizona and another in wildlife biology from Arizona State University. After completing six months of instruction at the DOW's candidate training school, Smith found herself competing with 209 trainees for just 12 available wildlife conservation officer openings, the magazine story said. Her performance earned her an appointment rated as a trainee candidate. Smith was appointed to the Vail District on February 1, 1974. I needed a job and sincerely believed that I was qualified for this one, Smith told the magazine in 1975. I didn't go into this to prove anything about women's ability to handle the job. It was the work that interested me, the job itself. It was not an easy path for Smith. According to then-DOW Director Perry Olson, in a 1990 article about female wildlife officers, Olson acknowledged that some of Smith's peers did not immediately accept her as a wildlife officer. There was a lot of resistance initially to hiring women, Olson said. The most often heard complaints were women weren't strong enough or tough enough to do the jobs. But Olson told the magazine Smith and the women who followed her into the agency proved the skeptics wrong. I feel some of our women are among the best officers in the division, Olson said. They handle themselves well. Today, it's common to see female wildlife officers in Colorado arresting poachers, patrolling during hunting season, wrangling bighorn sheep on relocation operations, trapping and transporting nuisance bears, or teaching hunter education courses. And not a single one reports any fear of cows. Cassidy English is a district wildlife manager for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Mountaintop Ptarmigan Posted on September 21, 2022 by Edward E. Castillo Dan's exasperated face said it all as he climbed back up to our position. This was his second trip to the rocky saddle where we were resting from our own ascent. Dan had to abruptly turn around and quickly return to the truck that held the emergency paper item he so desperately needed. Easton, Dan's son, and I watched him disappear behind a bush after digging through the truck fervently for what he was after. The truck resembled a tiny little miniature toy from where we sat atop a myriad of rocks. I turned and leaned my 870 against my leg as I steadied myself to gaze down towards the mountain lake and scan the Colorado mountains that encircle us. The gradual incline had rewarded us with an astonishing view of blue water surrounded by towering peaks and dark green pines in the lower country. 
Somewhere out there amongst the mountaintops were birds that resembled the coloration of the rocks that formed them. White-tailed ptarmigan are one of the three species of North American ptarmigan and the only variety found in Colorado, making it a sought-after bird for any adventurous wing shooter. When Coloradan Dennis commented on the possibility of going after ptarmies, as they're called by the locals, we had to jump, or rather, climb at the opportunity. Ptarmigan Camp Twenty-four hours earlier, we had packed up our bird camp. We had been hunting duskies, sage, and sharp-tailed grouse, as well as snipe, and traveled a few hours toward the San Isabel National Forest. After maneuvering Dan's full-size truck and 14-foot trailer through a mountainous road, we found a beautiful spot nestled among the tall trees near a trickling stream. Once Tarbigan Camp was up and running, we got a fire started as the cold mountain air was stirring. The plan in the morning was to hitch a ride with Dennis, tie down two dog crates, stow gear for four bird hunters, and squeeze into his Toyota truck. The morning temps were brisk. When the little white truck came to a halt on the narrow mountain road alongside the camp, we quickly loaded up and strapped in. Its small frame and nimble maneuverability made the bumpy 45-minute climb up the trailhead a little easier. O2 and trekking poles. Once there, no time was wasted. Dennis was adamant about keeping an eye on the weather. He did not want to get stranded on the mountain. I quickly placed the recommended silver and green cans in my vest. Oxygen. That's right, breathable air. The elevation in Kansas City is a thousand feet above sea level. We had camped at 10,850 feet for less than half a day, and we were going to be pushing 13K. That's a big jump in elevation for three Midwest flatlanders in a short amount of time. Depending on how our bodies reacted to the drastic elevation, these weightless containers could be as valuable as the current state of ammunition. With the snap of my chest strap from my hunt-ready bird vest, I was ready to climb. I grabbed the trekking pole and extended it, and immediately realized my 16-gauge 870 was in my other hand. I looked at Dennis and noticed he was carrying an actual backpack with a built-in sling to carry his shotgun, keeping his hands free to climb. Dan saw my expression of bewilderment and grabbed the 16-gauge and quickly MacGyvered it to my vest. The impromptu setup was quite secure. Easton followed suit as he too wore the same vest. Dan's vest would not allow him to finagle away to carry his shotgun, so he would climb with a shotgun and a trekking pole in hand. Dog or no dog? Prior to departing, Dennis explained that he had never hunted ptarmigan with dogs. It was his experience that the terrain could become too dangerous for the dogs, especially if a dog were to chase them over a ridge or cliff to retrieve them or find themselves in a predicament where they could not climb out. There were times that it was too steep that he had to have three or four points of contact, hands and feet, because it was so steep. He had about an 80% success rate hunting without a dog. He cautioned Easton to watch Abby carefully. Unforgiving Terrain With a determined brisk step, our ptarmigan Sherpa quickly distanced himself from us. Abby, Easton's young Dathar pup, scurried over the unfamiliar terrain with ease. We followed, and after winding up the trail, we were met with an incredible view. My eyes quickly gravitated toward the contours and jagged edges of the surrounding peaks. The mountainsides appeared smooth, but I knew they were comprised of boot-slipping shale and loose rocks. These mountain birds rarely descended past 11,500 feet, as they tend to live on or near the alpine tundra on isolated mountaintop islands. Once at the top, the environment would consist of narrow, treeless, and rocky slope areas where ptarmigan call home. I was losing myself in its vastness. 
Dennis's voice suddenly brought me back to earth. That's where I think they'll be, Dennis said, as he glassed the two far peaks opposite of us. Ptarmigans certainly live in unrelenting topography, I thought to myself. I'm no mountain goat. We decided to split up and cover more ground and increase our chances of finding birds. Dennis, Dan, and Easton each took their own respective paths, but they all chose to tackle the more difficult and higher terrain. I would continue following the trail down to the mountain lake. A severe injury a year prior left me with the loss of 11% movement in my right ankle. This makes it difficult for me to traverse across uneven terrain, and I find myself easily getting off balance. I grabbed the 16's barrel on my back, as if it were the hilt of a sword, and pulled it out from my bird vest. The trekking pole is quickly secured to the outer lashing straps, and I grab three purple shells and insert them into the shotgun. My first step off the trail onto softball-sized rocks caused me to sway backwards. I look over my shoulder and see a faint trio of figures climbing in different directions. Abby's dark coat stands out against the slate-gray mountainside as the dog moves across like a tiny shadow. I slowly scramble across the vast, uneven carpet of broken stone. The jagged rubble and boot-sliding scree makes me second-guess my quest in search of a mottled little plump bird with feathered feet. I find myself climbing up, down, and sideways, maneuvering over boulders. Each step is questioned. I feel like a gimp mountain goat. This is certainly not pheasant hunting. Binos, birds, camouflage, and hallucinations. I had been off the trail for some time, as it proved to be unproductive. Recent eyewitness reports from the local ranger had ptarmigan walking along the hiking path in the early hours. Dennis thought they would be up higher along the mountain slopes. He passed on a few good ptarmigan hunting tactics. Look for movement, periodically stop, listen, and glass for active birds. Easier said than done. Tarmies blend perfectly with their surroundings, as they have highly effective camouflage and are difficult to pick out against the rocky background. Each step was met with the possibility of me tumbling down the side of the mountain. For an uninjured individual, it would be a slight hindrance. For me, it was a real chore, maintaining my balance. While walking, I would strain my eyes onto the ground, searching for movement in the hopes that it would be a ptarmigan. I hadn't made any notable change in elevation, a hundred feet. Finding small openings along the switchback I discovered made it a little easier to travel. On occasion, I scrambled over large boulders. The black, gray, and white mountainous palette began to play tricks on my eyes. I realized I was hallucinating ptarmigan. A closer inspection of the objects of my perceived focus turned out to be small bunches of rocks and not coveys of ptarmigan as I had hoped for. I felt like a fool. This trickery went on. Just when I would tell myself it was a rock, my mind would tell me otherwise, and I would convince myself that what I was staring at and slowly approaching was in fact a ptarmigan standing motionless. Disappointment set in instantly when the birds I had climbed up to were nothing more than mere white and black splotched stones. Rock Ptarmigans Refusal to Fly As I searched for these elusive birds, my thoughts shifted to what I would do if I did come across them. Stories of ptarmigan refusing to flush when approached were common tales. This makes sense as they could very well be overconfident in their effectiveness to camouflage themselves in plain sight. But resistance to fly in the face of danger? Surely not. A tall tale was told by Dennis about the ptarmigan hit by a rock that stumbled to its death. 
After a rock thrown by a hunter to get it to fly, ricocheted off the ground and hit the tarmy on the noggin. Moose and Booming Echoes A few hours passed. My snail pace across the barren rocks hadn't been very productive. I continued to be fooled by birds that weren't there. They were just more rocks. The guys had vanished from my sight hours ago. I plopped down on a large, semi-flat rock to glass the mountainside next to the one I was on. Over the next thirty minutes, a faint noise would occasionally drift across the air. Unable to place the peculiar sound, I thought nothing more of it. Ignoring what I construed as more hallucinations, I returned to trying to locate active birds. Nothing. A long, nasally bellow made me refocus the binoculars to across the lake. Skimming the shoreline, I observed a moving brown figure. What the heck is that? I asked aloud. That's a gosh darn moose, I said to myself. The huge-bodied animal had obviously come in behind us on the same path. Its rack was impressive. I watched the moose meander its way along the edge of the water. I quickly sat up and quietly made my way to keep the moose in view. Scampering across rocks and back onto the trail, I managed to get within a hundred yards. Even at that distance, the casually moving behemoth was impressive. Finding enjoyment in watching the moose, the serene quietness was interrupted by a series of thunderous booms across the valley. Shotguns. Just as I glanced up towards the peak, tiny white flickering speckles danced across the brilliant blue sky. Ptarmigan. Unbelievable. About a dozen were in the air, but they quickly disappeared as they blended into the mountainsides. Rendezvous. My eyes strained, looking through the binoculars, hoping to catch a glimpse of the guys. I had to figure out what to do. If I climbed up and they climbed down, well, you get the picture. I had to at least start moving. Turning around, I began to retrace my steps and get on the trail, as that would be the quickest way to return to the saddle where we had broken off from each other. Stopping periodically to see if I could see anyone, I finally caught movement high up on the mountain. Two figures just below the ridgeline. It was Dan and Dennis. They were traversing down the mountainside. They would disappear on occasion, only to re-emerge as they moved through the scatterings of trees and islands of brush. They were heading straight down. Hundreds of yards to their left, I saw Easton and Abby on the same path. Looks like we would all be rendezvousing at the lake. Going down was just as difficult. As I continued stepping on loose rocks, I had to contend with crossing a mushy bog with a series of small streams crisscrossing it. I caught glimpses of torpedo-like silhouettes, trout no doubt, over a half hour later, I emerged on the edge. Dan and Dennis were just cresting the last rocky knob and would soon be on the direct path to the lake. Mountaintop Birds There was a subtle briskness in their gaits, their faces adorned with slightly crooked smiles. I extended my hand out to each of them, and before I could ask, Dan produced two mottled white birds, white-tailed ptarmigan. That was unbelievable! You should have come with us, Dan said. Before I could ask any questions, Dennis quietly took off his backpack and produced a pile of white fluff, with splotches of tan in each hand. The birds were wearing a sort of camouflage shawl of mottled shades of browns and grays. This short cape draped from their head to their backside and wings. Splashes of bright red blood seemed to have been color-matched with some of the male birds' bright red eye combs. Feathering extended down to their toes, causing their feet to resemble snowshoes. In fact, the genius name for white-tailed ptarmigan, Lagopus, means hare-footed in Greek. Here's how Dennis described their climb and hunt. They both started out together, but Dennis and Dan stay about 100 yards above them. 
to better cover the landscape. At the 12,600-foot level, Dan glassed a ptarmigan, hopped from rock to rock, then proceed uphill about a 100 yards away. Playing a sort of mountain charades, Dennis managed to signal Dan, and both started their stalk. Slowly and quietly, they reached where Dennis had seen the tarmy. Suddenly, ten birds flushed about thirty yards away from them. Amidst the barrage of shots, Dennis' quick snap dropped one out of the air and shot another ptarmigan that fluttered over the edge. While looking for the ptarmigan, the bird rocketed from beneath the rock that Dan had stepped on. The bird fell dead, landing on a narrow ridge. The echoing boom caused another cubby to flush fifty yards behind them. Both Dan and Dennis each shot a pair from this group. After collecting all the birds, they took in the magnificent view from 12,800 feet, which overlooked a giant basin and the continental divide to the west. Glassing, Dennis spotted a group of mountain goats a half mile away, bedded down approximately at the same elevation as they were. Both looked around for the other group of tarmies, hoping to locate tight-sitting singles. But after climbing further up, decided to call it and began their descent. A Shared Success Though I nor Easton ever got into any ptarmigan, it was obvious that we all shared in the success of Dan and Dennis. While I began to snap photos, Dan, Easton, and Dennis were pulled up to the shore of the mountain lake that lay before us. Dennis, being the type of person always to be prepared for any situation, quickly assembled a tinkara rod. And just like that, we went from hunting ptarmigan at high altitudes to gently presenting a fly tied with feathers from a sage grouse to trying our luck to fool the local trout. Dark figures slowly sliced through the clear water darting about. While ptarmigan may not be easy to find, the surrounding mountain ranges all have suitable habitat for the birds. There is certainly an adventurous bird to hunt. The hunt itself is full of wondrous views and breathtaking landscapes. It certainly was a memorable hunt for all of us. So if you're looking for solitude and scenery, then ptarmigan hunting is something that needs to be explored and one that Colorado has to offer. Oh, and if you do find yourself scampering over rocks and straining your eyes trying to figure out if what you're looking at is a pair of motionless ptarmigans, remember, it may just be a couple of rocks. Following are the 2023 season and unit areas. Season 1, September 11th through 13th, statewide except GMUs 44, 45, 53, 54, 66, 67, 68, 70, 71, 74 through 80, 444, and 751. Season 2, September 11th through November 28th. Area, only GMUs, 44, 45, 53, 54, 66, 67, 68, 70, 71, 74 through 80, 444, and 751. License and permits. Small gain for residents, $30.87. Non-residents, $84.96. Small gain, one day for residents, $14.23. For non-residents, $17.35. Small gain, additional day, $6.95 for both residents and non-residents. Habitat stamp. For individuals 18 to 64, a $10.40 habitat stamp is required with the first license purchased for the year, March 1st through March 31st of the following year. Limits. The daily bag limit is three, and you can have six in your possession. Where? Colorado has a widespread distribution of ptarmigan across the state in suitable habitat within the Colorado Rockies. 
Tarbigans prefer to live year-round from about 9,500 feet in elevation and above. Areas to key in on are the areas above treeline and alpine tundra and meadows, rocky slopes or scree fields. Shotgun and ammo. A light 12 or 20 or any shotgun you're not afraid of getting a few nicks and scratches on if you drop it. Go with 6, 7s, or 7.5 for shot shells. Choke, IC, or modified. Edgar Castile is a recent retired law enforcement officer. He travels the dirt roads in search of wild birds, hunting open fields, walking tree lines, and busting through plum thickets. Thank you for joining us for the Colorado Outdoors magazine. My name is John Arnold. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.